A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Welcome to Book Nook, where the Lorehounds, your guides to the labyrinth of Atuan. I'm David. And I'm John. And I'm Marilyn. And this is our coverage of the second book of the Earthsea series, The Tombs of Atuan by Ursula K. Le Guin. In this episode, we will have some spoiler-free conversation about our thoughts on the book before moving into a deeper conversation about major themes presented, as well as discussing the major plot sections of the book. We're going to be talking about the book in depth, and we will make sure to give you plenty of warning before we move into spoiler territory. While we enjoy discussing the book amongst ourselves, we also want to hear from you, and there are several ways you can join that discussion. You can send us an email at book at thelorehounds.com. You can visit our website at thelorehounds.com slash contact and either use the contact form or leave a voicemail using the built-in system, and we can splice your message right into the podcast. We'd also like to invite you to join our new Discord server. There's a link in the show notes below and on the website. We have a fun and welcoming community and dedicated channel for Earthsea Conversations, and we'd love to see you there. It's almost our 111th birthday. Well, not really. It's just our first birthday, which is a pretty major milestone considering our intentions when we sort of first started out doing this podcasting thing. So we've got a goal, and we'd like to reach 100 patron subscribers by the end of July. And as a thank you to all of our current and new subscribers, we're going to be sending everyone a limited edition thank you sticker. I'm going to have more information about that and other exclusive Patreon benefits at the end of the podcast. Stick around to that end of the podcast for more programming notes for the remainder of May as well as early June. Here's a couple of items for now. If you're a book reader and you want more, Go to Maester Anthony's ongoing in-depth chapter-by-chapter analysis of George R. R. Martin's A Clash of Kings. David and I were just on his podcast covering a Tyrion chapter, and you can find that episode on Bald Moves Hot D feed. If you're a fan of dystopian sci-fi mystery box shows, what a specific genre, <laughs> uh, definitely specific. check out uh, the new Apple TV series, Silo. 
You may be familiar with Alicia. She's been on a few of our podcasts lately, and she's been a regular contributor. And we've just welcomed her to the network to bring her podcast, Wool Shift Dust, covering the show Silo, onto our network. She's a part of our platform now. She's a part of the Lorehounds family now. Please give her a warm welcome and check out her episodes dropping Monday. Okay, well, now that we've got all that out of the way, let's get into our Earthsea conversations. Um, first thing that we should talk about really quickly is to recap our coverage plans and what we've done so far and sort of what our plans are going forward. John, you want to run us through that really quick? Sure. So we've already done the first book in two parts. We did A Wizard of Earthsea. There are four major books. And of those books, we are going to do all four. We were originally maybe just going to do the first three. I think that we've been talked into by both Marilyn and our listeners into doing all four. Yeah, four uh, so is you, important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can check that out on our feed or on our website. Next month, we're going to be doing book three, which is The Farthest Shore. And the following month, we're, we're going to be doing Tahanu, the fourth book. And there's a huge gap in time between the writing of the third and fourth book. So that's going to be some interesting discussion. Uh, we're going to see how it goes before we decide on if we're going to do Tales of Earthsea and The Other Wind, which are the sort of sequel uh, shorter works. But give us some feedback if you want more or less, if you're tired of hearing of, about this uh, series or if you want more. <laughs> Hopefully they want more. Uh, I hope I, so. I'm certainly enjoying this. Um, and I'm sure Marilyn has uh, opinions about our what our coverage plans should be. <laughs> well, you know me. Uh, thoroughness is, I think, an excellent idea. But I will also say that all the voices that I've seen in the Discord channel have been very much in favor of doing them all. And, yes. you know, if you want to find out stories about young Ogian and um, how the Isle of Wizards was first started and why women's magic developed such a terrible reputation, um, all of those things are covered in the different short stories. So... Interesting. Are both of those um, last two volumes, are they just two vo compilations of short stories or no. what is the... Okay. No, the, the Tales from Mercy is a compilation of fairly lengthy stories, actually, for the most part, although there are some short ones as well. And then um, The Other Wind is a standalone novel. Okay. Interesting. But it answers an awful lot of questions that have already been raised hmm. um, with the first book. So, Got All right. It. Very okay. cool. So, yeah, the, for serious consideration then. Um, so, I think what we want to do is have some generalized conversation about the book, how we have all responded to it, and just, you know, how it differs from the first and, and some of the things that we picked up. And then we'll take a break. And then when we come back, then we'll start to get into spoiler territory and cover some major themes and the plot points. But as we go around, um, just in terms of uh, what our history with uh, this book and the series of books are, I read these books when I was, uh, I think, when I first was a teenager. I can't remember. I just feel like they've always been with me. And then I've read them multiple times, especially during my young adult phase. I haven't read them in years and years. And I just, because we, Marilyn put this idea into our, she incepted this idea into our head because uh, she secretly wants to be a podcaster. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I've been rereading them. I probably haven't read them in like 20 years or something like that. And, uh, they're really, it's really great to, to touch back on this before. Marilyn, you used to teach this material when you were uh, at Colby college, right? That's correct. Yeah. For about 30 years or so mm -hmm. off and on. 
mixed in with other um, classes, but the course that I was teaching was Women in Myth and Fairy Tale. And well, this I would taught. have been a pretty important course in terms of that material. Exactly. I first they read Tombs of Atuan, and then they read Tehanu. Okay. <laughs> nice. And there was rich discussion about the difference between the two. Well, I'm looking forward to some of that discussion um, feeding into our conversation because I do have some questions about that. Um, John, this is your first time reading this particular book and reading any Ursula Le Guin? Well, I, I can't say anything about my past incarnations, but okay. for this lifetime, <laughs> sure, yes, I have not read Le, Le Guin besides uh, are, the, the Are first you the book podcaster reborn? Exactly, exactly. Mm. They're going to give me a new name, too. Right, nice. The the voice the voiceful one I don't know I, 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 I'm not a good situational comic that's all um, right. so given that what is your opinion about this book what did you what did you enjoy what did you think how how did it fit relative to your reading of Earthsea which was also your first time for that yeah you know I started this book three times wow. it did not hook me okay the first two times. And I pushed through the third time. And I'm glad I did, because I did really end up enjoying it. Uh, you, this will be spoiled in the first 10 seconds of the book, so don't be upset with me for saying it's a different protagonist. It's a different you know, POV. <laughs> and that was surprising to me, because it really felt like Ged was the guy uh -huh. for this series. And while Ged might play a part in this book, he's certainly not the focus point. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was surprising to me, and I was a little like, uh, I feel like we're starting over. We just got somewhere. We just, I just feel like we got to the meat of what they're trying to say about it, and we're starting back over. Uh, but as the as the book got on, I really understood what she was trying to do with it, and I really appreciated that she was doing it from a different angle. And I think that the idea of showing a world from different cultures is fascinating to me, mm. and it is done more often now. But it's done usually through multiple POV in a single book, mm -hmm. not with multiple books from different points of view. Right. Uh, so that's that's super interesting to me. Uh, overall, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed that it was a lot more traditionally written, like it was. It had a lot more dialogue than the first book, uh, and it and it just felt like it flowed a little better. The first book I did think jumped all over the place in terms of pacing. Okay. And uh, I think this one was a lot more evenly paced. So. Yeah, I think I think it's an improvement over the first book, honestly, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing where the series goes because I couldn't tell you quite honestly. Right. <laughs> um, you can almost say, um, if I recall correctly, A Wizard of Ursie was uh, Le Guin's first published novel. Okay. Not that she hadn't been writing a whole lot prior to this, and I think she'd written she had published short stories in some of the trade magazines, you know, the magazines of the day. But uh, Marilyn, correct me if I'm wrong. Is is isn't this her first published book? I think there was one before this. I'm, okay, I didn't take notes on this particular question, so right, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, reaching into this thing I laughingly call my memory. Um, <laughs> but I'm reasonably certain that there had been one book. Okay, um, certainly there was a book of short stories. Okay, this is the first fantasy novel she's ever right. Written. We can definitively say that. Yeah, yeah. Prior to yeah. this time, it was it was all science fiction. Yeah, the other thing I'll say about my experience with this is that I did the audiobook for this one because I was just short on time this month. But to my delight, Robert Ingalls did the oh. reading of it, who does the Lord of the Rings books. Yes. Oh, and so I had said, I think that a character becomes Gandalf in this book. 
And I think part of that is that the voice was exactly the same that was done <laughs> for that character. Um, but also, I, I think that it just sort of put me in that, oh, I'm listening to a fantasy story mm-hmm. uh, mode. And, and I really enjoyed that. It was a great performance. I would recommend that version. Uh, I'm curious, too, because you are um, quite a reader of science fiction and fantasy, if, if I could characterize that sure. as accurate. Do you see the influences of this book? Because again, this was an early seventies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you see where this is seeded other yes. authors and other works and IPs? Uh, the more I read it, the more I'm convinced Robert Jordan from the wheel of time read it. Um, <laughs> I think that you can see echoes in Mistborn, the Brandon mm-hmm. Sanderson trilogy. Actually okay. now it's like seven books, but anyway, everybody's got too many books. You know what? Side rant, stop writing so many books in your, se- in your series. <laughs> Wrap it up in three. I, I love um, a quote. There's a, I just got to, we're going to segue slightly in the afterward yeah. of the published afterward of the book. There's a great essay by uh, Le Guin about the writing of this book and her perspective on a few things. And one of the things she, she rails against is that, you know, people assumed that when she wrote Wizard of Mercy, that this was a planned trilogy and she had already thought this stuff out. And even in Ursi, and I remember us having a conversation about this, she's dropping stuff that come up in later books. And I was like, wow, did she have all this planned out? No, she was just making up stuff out of thin air, seeding it in her world. And then later she went back and then um, um, harvested on that stuff. And she says, you know, um, this is, quote, the reason people don't believe that I didn't plan a trilogy from the start is that fantasy now suffers from endemic trilogitis. Or even the more serious form of the disease, incurable serialism. Uh, seri- <laughs> uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is largely responsible for this epidemic, since its six books were printed in three volumes, a trilogy. And I would just jump in there and say it wasn't Tolkien's fault. That's true. No, right. That's true. Wait, do, do, does this all go back to Unger? As far as he was concerned, it was a single book right. that had six parts to it, but because it came out post-World War II, there was a bad paper shortage, and the publishers said, look, we can't possibly publish it all in one book. Nobody could afford to buy it. Mm -hmm. So that's why they brought it out in trilogy form. Um, Not to mention the fact that Tolkien was somewhat dilatory. Imagine that in writing (laughs) the appendices, which he had promised, you know, explanatory material and that sort of thing. I like to think Brandon Sanderson is a response to Tolkien's pace of uh releasing things since uh, i don't know how familiar you two are with him but he wrote uh four books sorry five books over the pandemic one of them was ya um hmm. but the other four were adult novels and he you know raised this whole kickstarter last year the guy right oh and he also wrote actually two other the, he wrote five secret books and he wrote two other regular books during the pandemic that's incredible uh and and tolkien's like okay it's been 30 years can i publish the silmarillion yet <laughs> Wait, no, I got to go back because the moon cycles were wrong. There's no way that this yeah, phase yeah. would have been in this, you know, uh, yeah. I changed the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. So uh, on the whole, you're um, positive on Tombs of Atuan, John. Yes, I would say okay. so. I had a good time. Uh, again, I think it was a slow start, but it yeah. does pick up. And right. I think if you're having a hard time getting into it, keep going. Right. Marilyn. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I was just going to come to you and, and uh, pick up from there. What, what were you going to pick up there on off of John's? Well, just my own first time read, which was, you know, long ago and far away, approximately yes. 55 years or so. <laughs> but um, I'm it, right there you know, with you. <laughs> it was a woman's coming of age story 
and it came out in the late 1960s, although it was published in 1970. And as such, at age whatever I was, 14 or 15, I was just grateful for a fantasy story in which women were at the center, however warped that center might be. Right. Um, it was, you know, it was like a new star appeared in the sky or a new planet is uh, mm, that wonderful she image says, yes. she uses um, mm-hmm. in the story. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that even as we saw Ged's coming-of-age story, this is also a woman's coming-of-age story right. as interpreted through the lens of the late 60s. Um, and I resonated most with the theme of how hard it is to leave behind the wounding messages you've been taught and to accept the freedom that you can receive by doing the work of healing the wounds. And I always cry at that point in the story, which Mm. (laughs) we will come to later. Right. So I'm curious, wounding messages, can you um, illuminate that a little bit more? Well, I can. It might go into spoiler territory somewhat. So, Um, Well, just talk about this concept, this this phrasing, because I I haven't heard this particular phrasing myself, and that doesn't mean anything. That's just, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it's used in other circles academic or or not but is is that th- i'm guessing that that phrase has a specific connotation well it's just the connotation of uh what happens to women in patriarchal culture okay and when the norm is so been around for so long and the wounding factors have been present for so long you, mm-hmm. you after a while you forget that that's happening mm-hmm you forget right. that they're wounds. You just think this is the way things are, quote unquote. Right. And when something comes along to say to you, actually, no, <laughs> it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be this way. It's a tremendous rush, but it's also um, you suddenly realize how much of your life has been wasted, perhaps, mm-hmm. or how much something hurt you so much that you didn't even know because you thought this is the way things are. This is the way, you know. Right. This is how yeah. things are. Right. Right. And so to see a young woman go through this process of recognizing that all of her life up to that point in her life was um, using her, using her for a specific purpose, which was pretty much meaningless in her culture by this time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, just profound. Right. You know, it, it makes you think when um, uh, my spouse and I, when our daughter was born, and we started, oh, look, wouldn't it be great to read her this story, Richard Scary or Curious <laughs> George or what have you, we're suddenly going, wait a minute, there's some stuff in here, like especially Richard Scary, which I, I have fond memories of as a kid. <laughs> The oh, you know the the woman hippopotamus is always screaming her head off, and the mm-hmm. pilot cat is very handsome, and the stewardess cat is very beautiful, and the it's always a woman screaming who needs to be rescued by the brave firefighters, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, and all of that sort of imagery. And then whenever we would try to talk with our daughter, but oh, it's time to brush her teeth, so here's Mister Toothbrush. Everything. <laughs> All of the languaging that was coming out of our mouths, unaware, like we were unaware because we're new parents, right? So just stuff just just comes out that we don't even know is there. Mm -hmm. It's all male gender oriented in the pronouns and in the languaging and in the structuring of it. Well, let me tell you how the millennials are doing. My son (laughs) is currently in a pink onesie that he got from my daughter, (laughs) hand me down. So uh, there will be no gender norms in my house. Right. 
Well, it's the thing that they say is the the strength of the spell is shown by how little you were aware that it's actually in place. Uh Yeah. You know, there's a fascinating book called Why Does Patriarchy Persist? It's Mm -hmm. by Carol Gilligan and Naomi Snyder. Oh, yay, Carol Gilligan. Oh, okay. Good Uh, stuff. She's brilliant, yes. Yes, she is. Uh, She has a theory on patriarchy that says patriarchy exists, yes, because of the power struggle, because, you know, men want to have power over women, but it also exists, it persists, rather, because it has certain psychological effects on men and women that there are short-term benefits of. And what she means by that is people have pain and people have grief, and Mm -hmm. patriarchy gives you a script. Patriarchy gives you tools to avoid dealing with that grief Mm. and to feel less pain in the short term. And no, that's not going to be real healing in the long term. But in the short term, men are trained to detach and women are trained to be caretakers. Now, look at these two characters we've had so far. (laughs) What did Ged do in the first book? He literally detached. He literally became two different people because he could not deal with who he was. Mm-hmm. He could Whoa. not deal with the grief of having led to the death of his headmaster, of having, you know, caused pain to Ogian. He was running away. He was detaching. What does Tenar have to do? I Careful. guess we'll get into the spoilers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but I think we, should, we can keep this framework in mind Absolutely. as we compare their trauma responses in each book. Mm-hmm. I would also introduce in the conversation the concept of the three types of power. Okay. That there is power over. Yeah. Which is what most of us go to immediately when we hear the word power. That's the first thing we think of. And that's pretty common and obvious. You know, Straightforward and obvious, yeah. There's power with, okay. which is the power that you have when you work with other people. Right. And there is empowerment. Okay. Which is the inner power, strength, agency that you develop within yourself. Mm-hmm. And- Power over almost invariably is a struggle because people are vying to be on top. Power with is more cooperative. Empowerment is the sort of thing where it doesn't matter how much or how little power I have or you have or anybody else has because it's our power and we all use it together for mm-hmm. the power with. And so there needs it's not be the power any for me to get another cup of coffee <laughs> in right. the morning right. or right. whatever. Yeah. Right. Or to it, ignore this and focus on that. or You don't have to do somebody else down in order to get your cup of coffee. Right. Whereas the, the domination model of power, you're constantly having to do other people down. Right. That's the problem right. with the pyramid. You know, sooner or later you get to the pinnacle, but you know what? There's somebody a little bit lower down who's grabbing at your ankle. I was certainly glad to read another adventure of the previous character, uh, which... I guess is spoiler, but not really because we all kind of knew that that would happen. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right. But I also wanted to say, and and listeners can probably gather this from what we've already been talking about. But this book does deal with issues of cruelty and isolation, and there are thoughts of suicide. So, if you're not in the mood for any of that, please do what you need to do for yourself. Exercise good self care. Um, you know, we love y'all, and we want y'all to do what you need to do to be right. healthy. Fair enough. 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because this this does, and that's uh, sort of segueing into my reactions to the book. This is a very different book from Ursie, and where Wizard of Ursie really felt like a traditional coming of age story. You know, the young talented kid. You know, his powers sort of exceed him, and everybody's got like, oh man, you got to go to the Wizard Island because we can't handle you here. And then he goes on adventures and does great deeds. It also, you know, Wizard of Ursi had a pace to it and an expanse to it because Ged was out in the world and moving around and doing stuff. Where this, there's a, I really noticed there's a palpable shift when the story turns away from the tombs uh, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really does take on a different uh, tonal quality. And so going into it, it's a, it is, it's a very slower, darker, introverted, internally focused book. And I could see, John, why that would be a, uh, a bit of a, a head scratcher coming into it. You're like, well, just a little I, whiplash, you know, yeah. uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying bit. it's bad. I think it, no, I think no. it ends up being a great choice, but it does when I'm coming from, you know, reading the first book in depth, talking about it on a pod, on two podcasts. And then, you know, having that in my head, glued in my head and w- opening up this book, I go, whoa, that's, uh, that's new. Yes. <laughs> well, the common factor here is that they're both stories of initiation. Mm-hmm. Right. And that will be true for the third book as well. The basic process of initiation is separation, liminality, and reintegration. Initiation right. is the same terminology that Carol, Gill- Carol Gilligan talks about when she talks about how young boys and girls are yeah. taught to employ these patriarchal scripts because, you know, as much as we want to say these characters are, you know, part of a, a domination type uh, regime, I think when you look at the characters, the ones that are keeping them in line with that regime the most are themselves. And it's because they're learning to deal with their trauma in a way that feels comfortable to them, that feels natural to them. And it's only through relationship. It's only through Vetch in the first book and mysterious relationship in the second book uh, (laughs) that these characters are able to break free of these toxic patterns. Well, but it's also important to remember that there is a political element to this. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's not just the people we see in the place. Right. That are, that are pulling the strings here. And in fact, Elizabeth Cummins in her book, understanding Ursula K. Le Guin writes that tombs of Atuan points out that what the adolescent woman needs for development into an adult society is not what society needs her to have. Mm-hmm. So our character is isolated, hidden, molded into a tool for patriarchal social goals Yes, and under a God King's control, though it takes a while for her to figure this out. Right. Because right. they kind of gas her up, right? They say, you know, you are all right. All right. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to spoilery guys. Well, before we carry on, let me just, putting one more thing that might astonish listeners is that Le Guin wrote again in the afterward, reading the book more than 40 years later after I wrote it, I wonder about many of its elements. It was the first book I wrote with a woman as the true central character. Hmm. Until the mid 1970s, I wrote my fiction about heroic adventures, high tech futures, men in the halls of power, men, men were the central characters. Their women were peripheral, secondary. Why don't you write about women? My mother asked me. I don't know how, I said. Right. 
A stupid answer, but an honest one. And that last bit comes from her essay, The Fisherwoman's Daughter, which was published in the collection Dancing at the Edge of Creation. Mm. Uh, why is it a stupid answer? It is an honest answer. It, it, I don't think she knew. How, I, would, I would disagree with her own characterization of her own answer. Um, Maybe it was just because she felt stupid. Right, which is a wounding message. Exactly. I mean, you know? part of it, I'd say, is, you know, Kurt Vonnegut said a similar thing where he couldn't write women. And no, he could not write women. Like, if you read his books, you just cannot write women. <laughs> but I think the criticism that's been levied against him as a man is, well, that seems to be that you don't see them as fully formed human personalities. Right. Whereas you do see men exactly. as these fully formed human personalities. And so I think that's where Le Guin is coming in is how stupid of me to not just say, well, a woman is just a man. But a different gender. You know what I mean? It's they're they are fully formed humans. I don't need to put pit them in this box of womanhood. Yeah. And we'll have more to say to that once we're really in spoiler territory. <laughs> <laughs> but you look at it this way our main character in darkness must come to light. Yeah. As Ged in light had to confront his darkness. Interesting. Yeah. So there's the there's the mirroring, there. which then goes to uh, Le Guin's own um, Taoist philosophies, exactly. Uh, and and some of the major themes that she lays into her books in terms of these these patterns. Equilibrium. Yeah. So I think uh, just to wrap up my thoughts on it, I I found that this book is so much more subtler than um, Wizard of Earthsea, and I. I I was not highlighting the prose passages as fast and as furious as I was in the first book. But then when I did get to certain passages that I highlighted, they are as profound and beautiful. But I just found that this whole book was so much uh, presented on a much more subtle level. And again, maybe that's part of my training as a male reader. I'm looking for the high action and the high adventure when Le Guin was bringing us something that's very different in tone and in style and in message. So it's all there. As much in everything that is in Earthsea is in this one. But I had to deconstruct my own, I had to take my own reading glasses off to be able mm -hmm. to start to get it to it. And, and that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to in this conversation is to keep unpacking that and to keep yeah. finding these these yeah. deeper things. So And she recognized that she was very much looking through those through those same lenses. Right. And I think part of what you were reacting to was the sheer passivity. Right. But Just, that mirrors the stereotypical, you know, men are the active and women are the passive. Exactly. Right. But she does. Which is why it resonated so strongly. Bit. Yeah. Which is why it resonates so strongly with Ursi. Because yeah. it is a, you know, it's a, a male active story in that regard. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, uh, so there's no question we have to read book four, Taonu. I mean, like, that, because this is. Good. The continuation and the and the and and then her further reflection on this. She's yes. looked back from this yes. point and looked at her previous work. Earthsea revisioned, fantastic right. essay. Okay, great. Well, I think uh, John or Marilyn, any any other further general points um, before we shift gears? Not from me. Deeper. I'm excited I'm to get down to it. Okay. Yes, let's. Okay, I think this is a good time for us to have a break. When we come back, we're going to get into spoiler territory. So if you haven't read the book yet, or you don't mind, you and you haven't read the book, and you want to just jump in with us, go for it. 
Um, but uh, when we get back, we're going to get into deep into the uh, plot and structure of the story. So we'll be right back. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. And we're back. Um, all right, so let's talk about some of the major themes that we uh, have encountered while we're doing this. And I think one of the things, too, that we should mention is definitely, if you're reading this book, make sure to read the afterword because there's some great uh, perspectives on um, her own sense of her writing. And I already sort of threw out one quote that's from that, which is about the sort of Tolkien. Um, uh, Triliogitis? I can't pronounce it. I'm a terrible pronouncer of odd-sounding words. But Marilyn, you had some perspective on this uh, essay that she wrote and that was included. And I wanted to see if you had any particular things that you wanted to bring up about this. Yeah, well, the first point that I found really fascinating is that the story came from a land. And she she writes... Now came the great improbable impetus to the book, a road trip to southeastern Oregon, our first visit to Harney County, a high and lonesome land of mountains and great sagebrush plains of pure skies, far distances, and silence. Mm. Coming back from there, after a two-day weary, dusty drive with our three kids, I knew that my novel would be set in that desert. In the car, when we weren't playing signs alphabet or singing 49 bottles of beer on the wall, I began to dream my story. That land had given it to me. I am forever grateful. Interesting. Um, I just did a quick Google of Harney County in Oregon, and I lived for many years in Portland, and I don't think I'd ever been to Harney County. Um, it is on the southeast. It's a big chunk of southeast uh, Oregon on the Nevada border. I've been out. I've been to the Malheur uh, part of that, and it is. It's big, wild. It's a whole different kind of country if you haven't been out there. And I could see how um, that might affect her that way. Yeah, the two things that stuck out to me from that were sagebrush and silence. She refers to both of those things right. quite a lot. Actually, I've been. We did, I remember do going to Malheur Lake now once, and that is in Harney County. So I've seen hmm. a little bit of that country, but I was very young. So yeah. And she also talks about this change of the hero's gender, mm -hmm. and so she says, "And as a change of gender, Ged would play a part in it. The person whose story it was would be a girl, a girl who lived far from the cities of the archipelago in a remote desert land." A girl who could not seek power, as young Ged could, or find training in the use of it, as he did, but who had power forced upon her. A girl whose name was not given to her by a kind teacher, but taken from her by a masked executioner. 
The boy, Ged, offered wisdom, refused it through his own pride and milfulness. The girl, Tanar, given the arbitrary power of a goddess, was taught nothing about living her life as a human being. When I was writing the story in 1969, I knew of no women heroes of heroic fantasy since those in the works of Aristo and Tasso in the Renaissance. These days there are plenty, though I wonder about some of them. The women warriors of current fantasy epics, ruthless swordswomen with no domestic or sexual responsibility who gallop about slaughtering baddies. To me, they look less like women than like boys in women's bodies, in men's armor. But be that as it may, when I wrote the book, it took more imagination than I had to create a girl character who, offered great power, could accept it as her right and due. Such a situation didn't then seem plausible to me. But since I was writing about the people who in most societies have not been given much power, women, it seemed perfectly plausible to place my heroine in a situation that led her to question the nature and value of power itself. Heroic fantasy descends to us from an archaic world. I hadn't yet thought much about that archaism. My story took place in the old hierarchy of society, pyramidal power structure, probably military in origin, in which orders are given from above with a single figure at the top. This is the world of power over in which women have always been ranked low. In such a world, I could put a girl at the heart of my story, but I couldn't give her her man's freedom or chances equal to a man's chances. She couldn't be a hero in the hero tale sense, not even in a fantasy. No, because to me, fantasy isn't wishful thinking, but a way of reflecting and reflecting on reality. After all, even in a democracy in the second decade of the 21st century, after 40 years of feminist striving, the reality is that we live in a top-down power structure that was shaped by and is still dominated by men. Back in 1969, that reality seemed almost unshakable. So I gave Tanar power over, dominion, even Godhead, but it was a gift of which little good could come. The dark side of the world was what she had to learn as Ged had to learn the darkness in his own heart. That's fascinating to me. You know, what's interesting to me is, um, you know, Tolkien clearly had a male-dominated world in his fantasy, too. And that oh, makes yes. sense to me. Um, but you look at Jordan, who I think, it seems clear to me, is, has largely taken a lot of influence from this work. And Jordan puts that on its head. Jordan says, no, the women are dominant in my society, you know. And both, both genders in his society um, you know, I'm, and I'm using that as a binary because that's the way his world works. Um, both genders in his society, you know, have have advantages and disadvantages. But really, it's men who are are placed second at the tables of power. And um, that's just really fascinating to me where she says, I can't even use this as wishful thinking. I can't even I can't even put this on its head. Uh, and. You know, I, I guess what Jordan ends up doing with it is Jordan says, let me use flipping it on its head to show the problems with it, right? Because mm. all of a sudden, you know, you notice that a lot of people read The Wheel of Time for the first time and the strong female characters who perhaps say some stuff that are it's nasty about men, they go, oh, that feels icky. Well, it feels <laughs> icky for women to live in your world. So that's the exactly. whole point. And uh, yeah, it's just interesting that that Le Guin was just so like, no, I need to show the truth. I need to reflect exactly what's happening now. And I think this is her first inchoate stirrings of realizing 
that it doesn't matter who's on top, quote mm-hmm. unquote. The problem is somebody, somebody is, is on right. top. Mm. Right. Power and over. There's a, it's a power, power over. Power over. At right. the end of the day, that's not going to get us out of some of the greater sufferings that we really wish right. we could get out of. Right. So, um, Marilyn, in that last quote that you just uh, read for us, um, what uh, I mean, that was there was quite a lot packed in there. And I'm trying to pull like, what are a couple of things that we should really take away from from that that uh, point of view that Le Guin had on her writing here? That she she wrote the story into a world that had a listening for heroic fantasy and uh, uh, this particular power dynamic. Well, I think, as I say, I'm not sure she was even aware of it herself at the time, but she was beginning to uncover the weaknesses of the top-down system. Was she coming out of the labyrinth? Could be. Although, again, (laughs) it it didn't really... She couldn't come out of the labyrinth until some of the feminists of the next 20 years let her out. Right, kept working on it. With their you know, beginning of things like um, uh, consciousness raising circles and mm-hmm. writings by the very earliest um, authors examining this whole issue of gender and power and dynamic and all the rest of it. I, I as a, um, as a son of a, a woman who was a, a professor, an English professor and a and university administrator, I remember when we first started getting Miss Magazine I remember the ERA, you know, marches and the things that were going on. Mm-hmm. I remember, oh, Lordy, what was the movie with... I, I'm sorry, this is a terrible cultural reference, and I'm having a hard time remembering the name of the movie. It was a movie about sexism in the office that starred Dolly Parton and... Um, oh, nine, nine to five. five. Nine to five, yes. That stuck in my head because it, it was these consciousness-raising things that it took millions of women in this country to push forward again, right? Because this wasn't the first time that women had come together to push push social agenda forward. Mm. Um, but I'm very conscious of that because that was in my that occurred in my own childhood. And so to think about that this book was published into that dynamic in 1970. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the, you know, coming towards the end of the Vietnam War, coming towards the end of the anti-war movement and uh, and all of the other social changes that were happening at that time. And she was very involved with the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. And she was very concerned by that whole whole process. And you'll find she often talks about, you know, military being the source of the top-down system. Right. We were, she mentioned, I mentioned reading that earlier. Sure. Not to mention <laughs> feminism is divided from the 70s through the 90s and, you know, still oh, no today kidding. to an extent. No I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we have time to get into that tonight. But <laughs> That's a different podcast. <laughs> boy, oh boy. I mean, Le Guin is, is talking about these topics and, and referencing these topics in a time where a lot of people are on the same side but don't agree. And, and that, I think, is worth mentioning as well. Right. Which is why I can't wait until we get to uh, Tahanu and to Ursi Revision because she brings up that very... Interesting of it, yeah. Hmm. What else do we got from the essay here? Well, you're dealing with the imagery, you know, the gendered imagery, which goes back Mm -hmm. centuries of masculine and feminine so-called magic or power. And so you have these nameless ones. They appear, as she says, 
as mysterious, ominous, and yet inactive. Mm -hmm. Again, that stereotype of activity and passivity. Arya Tanaris a priestess, the greatest of all priestesses whom the god king himself is supposed to obey. But what is her realm? A prison in the desert, women guarded by eunuchs, ancient tombstones, a half-ruined temple, an empty throne, a fearful underground labyrinth where prisoners are left to die of starvation and thirst, where only she can walk the maze, where light must never come. She rules a dark, empty, useless realm. Her power imprisons her. So the imagery of the labyrinth as the womb, mm -hmm, yeah, clearly. and also the tomb, that goes right. back a long, long way. Right. Women associated with earth, men associated with sky, men associated with intellect and thought. So the source of magic is words and study and mm -hmm. intellectual women associated with feelings. Uh, and I hate to get so reductive, but um, Adam naming things. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's what we have in the, in the Hardik cultures, the, you know, the culture of the archipelagos is that names give you power over things, whereas in the Kargish lands, it's, you know, the rituals are mumbo-jumbo. They're smoke and mirrors. They don't really have any meaning. Mm -hmm. And the active power is a god-king, not the real old powers, which seem to be dormant and asleep, um, and the things that can be unnamed. And it takes Ged to come in and say, no, they have names. They are things. They are old things, but they are still things in this world. Um, so, and there's also a sense in which it wasn't always this way. Uh -huh. If you remember the scene where she's True. exploring all of the chests in right. the, you know the storage areas of the temple, and she sees evidence of how the princesses would come and dance with the one priestess, and kings would make splendid offerings. So there's a sense in which back in the day, there was some honoring of women's culture. Right. And maybe it wasn't so much a religion of fear and terror of death and darkness of the nameless ones, mm -hmm. but honoring of perhaps other incredible powers like the power to give birth. I don't know. She doesn't really imply that very much. I'm just kind of putting that in on my own shtick. But there's, to my mind, a definite sense of it wasn't always this way. Right. But it has now happened because of the grasping for power and for unifying of the Kargish lands and the, the twin brother gods and then the god king and right. all those things. And the priestesses of these three different entities are also starting to be reflected in terms of their power and authority. Plus, you've also got this uneven dynamic of two older women and, you know, a teenager. And it's interesting to reflect on the previous Arha was probably around Thar's age, and Kossel was the odd one out. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's Kossel's turn right. to have the power because, you know, Thar dies. Whoever comes in is going to be totally new to the situation. And here's this young kid. So Kossel is not going to let anyone stand in her way because she is the priestess of the God King, which is where the real power resides now. Or so she thinks. I mean, Ged, as you said, had a very different understanding because, of course, he had had personal experience of the Nameless Ones. Right. And actually said at one point, you know, if, if she truly believes that they don't exist, then she has gone mad. <laughs> hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I had um, one of my notes in in these theories is gender and magic, um, and these different styles of magic. But in a way, I think what we're we're seeing as you you're describing here is as the God King, who's just a king, right? As Penthe says, like he's just <laughs> a old bald dude, right? Who's consolidated. he cuts his toenails like anybody else? Exactly. <laughs> he's as he's consolidated power and pulled it. The power towards himself, the nameless ones have, you know, gone to sleep to the point that um, Castle can even uh, um, insult them, and nothing befalls her, mm-hmm. which is another one of the little stones that sort of tips the balance for her. Okay, John. So, what are some of the themes or topics that you really picked up on here that that struck out to you? You know, there were really two things that I I really picked up on, and. One of them I basically already outlined, which is this this patriarchal dichotomy of sort of being detached from yourself in different ways. Mm-hmm. And Ged had that whole journey in the first one where he's trying to reconnect with himself. He has to name himself. He has to confront who he is and stop detaching from his own actions and emotions. Right. And Tenar, uh, especially with dealing with sentencing the men to death, has to... She she almost feels guilty and she feels compelled to stay in her role and to continue doing these tasks, continue caring for the tombs, continue uh, doing her job, continue doing her duty dutifully, you know, doing her right. duty dutifully, dutifully. I can't even talk tonight. Um, <laughs> You're yes. getting my disease. I know. I I gotta I gotta uh, get on a flow now here. Yes. But anyway, my point is, I, I think that. This whole idea of sort of running away from yourself in different ways, you know, she does it by keeping her hands busy. Ged did it by keeping mm-hmm. his feet busy. And uh, I think mirroring those those two journeys was really a, a great way for Le Guin to have a, a very different tale that had the same outcome and the right. same meaning. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I thought about was this quote, the other half was lost. How lost is the answer, uh, you know? <laughs> there's there's this thing that happens in Le Guin that I have not found in a lot of other fantasy work, which is that the magic doesn't really come from the magic. It doesn't really come from the supernatural. It's just, it's almost an attitude in her books of the real magic is believing in something not pessimistically and not as a cynic, but, you know, is it lost? How lost? You know, I, I mean, how lost? Ged is ready to go searching for the ring. Ged is ready to go on whatever journey he needs to go on. You know, he already he already had to go beyond the sea. That was another, you know, believe and, and it'll come true moment. And uh, it, it's just this this world has so many moments of possibility, it feels like, that feel magical even when they're not supernatural. And that is something that I think is unique to Le Guin and that I have not seen elsewhere. Hmm. Hmm. I'm reminded of, I think it was one of the masters on Roke saying the art of magic is to do only that which you must do, and mm-hmm. nothing more, nothing less. Right. That That is also perhaps a way of uncovering the possibility um, and also acknowledging what is, you know, 
Ged talks about the earth is also terrible and dark and cruel, mm-hmm. as yeah. well as filled with light and, and joy and beauty. And the problem is when humans worship the cruelty and the darkness, that's when you start breeding, you know, the, the evil, if you will. In fact, my personal thesis, um, you know, there back in the day, the priestesses, the princesses danced with the priestess, and you know, there was good that came. There was counsel. There was wisdom. And I'm wondering, could it be that as the earth knowledge and women's wisdom became less and less valued and honored, these nameless ones of the earth grew more and more angry and trapped and sullen, and eventually became cruel and vengeful, to the point of even driving Kossel mad. Well, yeah. Yeah, because she certainly was on the side of of the God King at that point, right? But but she had but her mind had been eaten by the nameless ones. Mm-hmm. As and she Jen didn't says. even miss it. Yeah, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> she was just turned into a, a tool, even though she didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As as so many women are. Um, and that's interesting. Yeah. This this uh, I, I'm going to take your how lost was the other half, you know, uh, John, and I'm just thinking about for, for women, how lost was there's a a sense of identity beyond Mm. the constructed norm that was then given to people through, you know, media and magazines and, and cultural norms beyond the script. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for how much had women lost and not known that they had lost it. Yeah. And that sense of like, wait, 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 there's something else going on. We got to like, we got to figure this out and we got to like, you know, get out of this labyrinth. Well, even how Marilyn pulled in that quote of, you know, I I couldn't even imagine the world changing, right? Of of Mm -hmm. this, uh, I I don't remember how Le Guin phrased it, but basically, you know, it needed to reflect the world. It seemed unshakable, something like that, uh, that, that this power dynamic would change. Right. Right. Which... Um, it kind of is an interesting thing that she's doing too. And so this gets into some of my notes that I, I had from, from the story, which is this, um, different type of hero's journey. And I saw this on, on one of your notes, Marilyn was mm-hmm. about trust and, uh, power with instead of power over and how they needed each other. Yes. Um, and in a traditional hero's story, hero's journey, the hero goes, it's a sort of this solo quest, right? And you exactly you go off and you have a master and you have some challenges, and then you discover this truth, and then you bring that back to the world, and there's all these different various milestones and gateways to to measure the progress against. And in this, it's it's still a hero's journey. I mean, uh, uh, uh Tenard brings back the the whole ring, right? Yeah. So she's bringing something back to the community out of the darkness. But she couldn't do it alone, and he couldn't do it alone. Exactly. So it's not a solo journey. Right. It is a journey of two people. Mm-hmm. And back to John's earlier point, there were some feminists who were very cross with this solution because they said, oh, one more time, the girl has to be rescued by a man. <laughs> but it, but really, she's not they rescued didn't by get the man. Exactly. Right. They <laughs> missed that point because right. they were so accustomed to seeing the trope. Right. But she's rescued by relationship, which, you know, I'll bring Gilligan yes. into it one more time. Gilligan says the opposite of of 
patriarchy is relationship is love yeah. is, is yeah. that's yeah. how you get past these boundaries right mm-hmm. and that's how you get past these barriers and break these patterns and mm-hmm. you know you see that these two when they finally trust each other when they finally form a relationship which happens over time this doesn't happen overnight right that is when they can free themselves from this labyrinth and here is a dragon lord who is, you know, one who doesn't get eaten by a dragon, who can talk to a dragon and not be <laughs> right. eaten by them as as definition. Here is a guy who's able to um, hold back, you know, incredible power, and yet he's so weakened to the point of starvation and dehydration that he is powerless in this realm, and he has to depend on her first. Yeah. Right? And And... Then, yeah, this this idea that he just says to her, well, you have a choice. You have choice. You can stay here and be Arha, or you can leave and be Tanar. That's, I can't do anything else about that. I am not right, the one in right. charge here. You are. And I'm just illuminating the two choices, the two pathways that you have here. So he's not rescuing her by any means. Can right. I throw in a quote? Of course. <laughs> Go for it. One of my well, names. I'm not. No, I can't allow you to do that. You, <laughs> you, you, you must. You must. Your own agency. <laughs> By my own agency, I would like to read these quotes. Absolutely, we're. I here mean, for you it. just mentioned that you must be Artha or you must be Tanar. You cannot be both. To be reborn, one must die Tanar. It is not so hard as it looks from the other side. But this is the one mm. that I really wanted to read. Wait, is this the one? About she cried for the waste of her. Not yet. Okay, because when we get that's like that's we got a ways to go for that. Yeah, this that's is a the big one, one. That's where a big he one. said, and this also touches on one of your questions, which we'll get at. Yeah, in a minute. Get is saying to her, or he said, you know, you have this and I have this, and between us, and Tanar says, between us we have the ring of Earth Akbe, mm-hmm. and Ged says that's true. I thought also of another thing between us. Call it trust. Dot, yes. dot, dot. Yeah. Hold that thought. That is one of its names. It is a very great thing. Though each of us alone is weak, having that we are strong, stronger than the powers of the dark. His eyes were clear and bright in his scarred face. Listen, Tanar, he said. I came here, a thief, an enemy, armed against you. And you showed me mercy and trusted me. And I have trusted you from the first time I saw your face for one moment in the cave beneath the tombs, beautiful in darkness. You have proved your trust in me. I have made no return. I will give you what I have to give. My true name is Ged, and this is yours to keep. He had risen, and he held out to her a semicircle of pierced and carven silver. Let the ring be rejoined, he said. So there's the symbol right there. Right. The broken relationship, relationship. Right. It heals the wounds <laughs> that have been have been created by patriarchy. I'm loving this conversation. We are an hour <laughs> in and the phrase was uttered. We've got a long way to go before that. But uh other than the length, I'm I'm <laughs> So well, and that's and that's where our, uh, another note that I had then too was the the sort of the symbology of labyrinths, and here we have rings again, you know, most famously where our origins as a podcast come from <laughs> Tolkien's realm and the and the world of rings and the rings of power, and here we have another ring, uh, even though she seems to rail against Tolkien a little bit, 
But um, I was curious, uh, Marilyn, too. I mean, obviously, we have a, a in Greek mythos, we have a labyrinth. Um, yes. But where else do we see uh, labyrinths as a, um, a symbol in, in fantasy? Well, of course, there's the eponymous labyrinth, right? <laughs> um, what was that, a movie? Oh, the David Bowie movie? <laughs> David Bowie movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I tend to know more of the classical stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this whole thing with Ariadne um, and the labyrinth, you know, the story is Theseus came as one of a bunch of captives who were supposed to be fed to the Minotaur who right. lived in the center of a labyrinth that was built by King Minos to, to hold this horrible monster um, prisoner. And some version of the story, she's, well, she is a princess, she's his daughter, but she's also known as, wait for it, the priestess of the labyrinth. Yeah, Ooh. right. There we go. Okay. And some people say that when you walk a labyrinth nowadays, the only thing you find in the center is what you bring with you. Mm, okay. And that phrase will resonate um, with when Luke goes into the cave. In, uh, oh, in Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back right, in Star yeah. Wars. Mm -hmm. mm. Nice. So good pull. Good. You're you're you right. Gotta have a cave. Yeah. <laughs> you, you gotta have a cave or an underground or some. This, right. This is this is again the hero's journey. You know, you descend and return. Yeah. Um. But right. in this instance, it's the priestess of the labyrinth who has the key because mm -hmm. she gives Theseus a ball of string and a sword. Thank you. Um. And I think also some light, and whispers him directions and so forth. And so he's able to get into the heart of the labyrinth, kill the Minotaur and come back out again. So the, the following of the windings and the following back out again, mm -hmm. you know, um, Tanar has the key to the labyrinth. She knows all of his twisting and turning. Ged has the light and together they have the power of their togetherness, right? which enables them to maintain uh, you know, get to maintain his spells and Tanar to fight off the the mental anguish that the Dark right. Ones are laying upon her because of the betrayal that she's enacting. Right. And then some other thoughts that came up to mind, too, for me were about magic and scale and power, because at, at some point she says, well, your your magic's sort of good for some stuff, but not for other stuff. <laughs> and and there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff around that. But then I, it made me think of two things that Ged has besides this ability to, you know, name things and not get eaten by dragons and whatnot. And one of them is kindness and the other is silence. And we, you know, we don't think of those traditionally as magical powers, but my goodness, do they have two very important aspects, you know, of, of Ged's journey and just, and the way of this world is getting shaped. And if you think about it, and and apply it in into our primary world, the the power of kindness is uh, incredible. Then the ability to turn any kind of situation around because you're being kind. Now, granted, you know you can't always be kind in every situation, but in your daily life and your daily practice, you know. So this idea of kindness as a force, because he gets the broken half of the ring just by being kind. Yeah, just by and being a human being to with other human beings. And it is an act of kindness which gives him the ring. Yeah. And it is an act of kindness that spares Gollum and causes the right. destruction of the ring in The Lord of the Rings. Right. Yep. yep. Exactly. So maybe not so far off after all. And then this other idea of silence, but silence is a force. 
And there's this quote from uh, near the end uh, when they're in the cave before they get on the boat to, to go out. More caves there. Um, <laughs> and she's observing him. And uh, Le Guin writes, he was as still as the rocks themselves. Stillness spread out from him like rings from a stone dropped in water. His silence became not an absence of speech, but a thing in itself, like the silence of the desert. And I just cannot help but think back to where did he get that from Ogyo, <laughs> right? From his master, from the, the first thing. And it's... You mean when he rekindled a relationship? <laughs> yes. And therefore gained the wisdom he needed to complete his exactly. quest? <laughs> there you go. But then in the silence, you know, how does he, how does he divine the names of things? He listens and he observes. He's silent. And so when uh, Vetch's um, niece or sister, I can't remember. Sister. Sister. Um, you know, he's just observing her. He's, 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 he's silent. He's not having opinions about her. He's just observing her. Or, you know, when he's in the, in, they're in the labyrinth, you know, how is he holding back? You know, he's got to be silent. He's, he's like marshalling his forces. So I don't know. There's just this whole uh, thing around, about silence that I found really interesting. And it just uh, beautifully encapsulated in that, in that little section of prose. Yeah. And the subtext to that is if you want to learn something, shut your mouth. Right. <laughs> right. Or right. ask a question. Or ask a question and then listen. And to then the listen. Answer. Exactly. So when yes. he has to leave Roke, you know, he has to say, he, he can't figure out the dude's name, the doormaster, right? The, the right. you know, what does right. he have to do? He's just like, oh, I just have to ask and then be quiet. Yep. So, yep. yeah. All right. So the, the last that I had, which is, I think the sort of thesis statement of this whole book, and it's about the weight of liberty. I think we can get into that later because mm -hmm. it is a real power punch of a, a yeah. A, a, quote and stuff. So um, what do you think, John? Should we take another break? And then when we come back, we can get into the plot outline in major sections. Let's do it. Okay. And we're back. And I think what we'll do now is we'll get in uh, to sort of recapping the book and going through the major plot outlines or major sections and sort of a plot outline and talk about the, the different sections and some of our reactions to it. John, would you uh, be so kind as to run us through this conversation? I would love to lead you through the labyrinth. Thank you. <laughs> Let's begin with Tenar's youth. We're introduced to a child named Tenar who is believed to be the reincarnation of the priestess of the tombs of Atuan. Her name is taken away and replaced with Ara. Arha? I, I, I can never pronounce it. Uh -huh. uh, the Eden One. She develops friendships with her eunuch servant, Manon, and a fellow priestess, Penthe. I kept this one short because I think that there's some stuff to talk about with her home life. I think something that struck me was the different reactions of her parents to mm. knowing that she'll be taken away. Her father detaches from her. Her father says, well, why, why even develop a relationship with her if we know she's leaving? Her mother wants to take care of her. Her mother wants to cherish the time she has with her. So that struck out, that stuck out to me right away. That was actually my first clue that this was a study in patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. What did you two think about it? 
Um, I did highlight one section in here, and I, I think maybe I was reacting to this whole scene as a parent myself, and and I kind of <laughs> identified with the father. And this line, his face in the dusk was full of grief, a dull, heavy, angry grief that he would never find the words to say. I can't even read the line. Yeah. Yeah. I, can't, I can't connect to that grief because it's grief and it's, it's in a very pure and raw form. But it's an uh, angry grief, right? Because the yes. anger masks it. The anger allows mm, him to feel yes. something besides pain. It gives you yeah. control over your grief. Right. Right. It's uh, sort of like the dark side of the force, you know? You, you, the, the light side, you have to go with it. The dark side, you have to try to dominate it. You have to try to control it. And right. so he's trying to dominate his grief. He can't actually confront it. He can't develop a relationship with his daughter, who he, who he will lose. Maybe she'll go back later. What's going to happen then? How is he going to feel about how he treated her beforehand? Right. Yeah, Marilyn, I, what were your thoughts on this section? Intense grief, <laughs> picturing what the mother must have been going through, the fact that she tried to trick the priestesses on their second visit by making it appear as though the baby had caught the witch fingers, you know, the smallpox, oh. um, and got beaten for her pains. Um, yeah, wow. it's, it's, it's a very grievous part of the story, really you know, kidnapping of a child. And at the same time, I don't want to dishonor or disrespect those cultures who do believe in reincarnation of this nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, you know, think of the Dalai Lama. Right. Um, There is a very strong belief that certain figures will appear as themselves again and again, but you have to go and look for them. Right. I wonder Um, in fantasy, sorry to interrupt, if this was a thought that I had, where else in fantasy have we seen the reincarnation? Got it. Got you it. Do. Avatar do. The Last Airbender. Boom. Uh, they actually took... <laughs> prior. Prior they, to 1970. Prior to Le Guin. <laughs> uh, they actually took the Dalai Lama ritual of bringing the possessions of the previous Dalai Lama to yes. uh, the, the babies who might be the Dalai Lama and seeing if they react to them. Um, they did the same thing in Avatar The Last Airbender. They took like the previous avatars um, you know, uh, possessions and, mm-hmm. and put them in front of Aang, and that's how they figured out that he was the avatar. But anyway, yeah, I think that, you know, again, Le Guin's influence, but also real world, uh, just same reflections of the same thing in the real world throughout different fantasy works. Yeah. Right. Because Taoism. And right. although the Dalai Lama is, is you know, Tibetan Buddhism and not Taoism, still that Eastern flavor. When you asked the question, David, my mind went right away to Sir Terry Pratchett. Okay. <laughs> okay. Which is a rather different flavor. Yes, it is. Sure. <laughs> the, the, um, the time monks the history monks, I'm blanking on their proper term, but um, the fact that they have the abbot who is serially born back in himself and starts as an infant, but with full recollection of everything in an adult conversation. So, they're mm. talking about, you know, <laughs> how is the abbot doing? Well, well, you know, the teething was bothering him now, but, you know, he's learning to control his bowels. So, you know, <laughs> things are moving along nicely. That's pretty good. That's pretty But good. he still has this full, you know, wisdom and knowledge, and he's very much in charge of things. Even though he's, you know, throwing his toys at his advisors right. when they when they <laughs> disappoint him. <laughs> right. Another thing that struck me, and in, in this is a meta thought about Le Guin. Um, there's a passage: uh, the little girl was taken from room to room, temple to temple. In one place, salt was placed upon her tongue. In another, she knelt facing west, while her hair was cut short and washed with oil and scented with vinegar. 
And another, she lay face down on a slab of marble behind an altar while shrill voices sang a lament for the dead. Neither she nor any of the priestesses ate food or drank water all that day. And I couldn't help but think, wasn't uh, Le Guin's father an anthropologist? Yes. And so it, it really felt in this whole section of from uh, of not only this ethnography of the Kargish lands, yeah, um, but also in the the becoming uh, priestess. I just felt uh, Le Guin, the anthropologist, was was mm. writing this part of the story. Which or maybe she went beautiful. to the synagogue on Yom Kippur. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, it could fasting. be as simple as that, right? But six-year-olds aren't required to fast, are they? No, I no. didn't think so. I believe it's. I think it depends on the on the synagogue. But anyway, we don't have to get into to Jewish rule right <laughs> now. Just uh, I had my quip. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say that I adore Pente. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is one of the. She allows Tanar Arha to have a human relationship. Yeah. However, you know, disturbed or disjointed it is, um, she still. Pente is the one who lets her know that, golly, there are actually people in the world who don't believe all this stuff. Imagine that. Right. What, how do I deal with that? And I love when she says, I hope in the next life I'm a dancing girl. <laughs> I will have earned it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like that, that sort of uh, reluctant priestess of Pente. And I like later that comes back where Tanar says, Man, I'm the one who gets to escape. Should have been Pente. She really wanted to escape. I was happy yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe in I her head. Happy. In her head. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. At any I settled into my role. Content, here, let's say. She, never she was did. content there. Yeah. All right. There's not a lot in this section. This was uh, pretty much the preliminary. So let's move on to being a priestess. As a priestess, Tenar is reminded of the things she knew in her past lives, many of which were passed down by her peers. To other priestesses, Thar and Kassil, uh, train her in the ways of being a priestess. Tenar is the priestess of the nameless ones, causing Kassil to become jealous. Tenar learns that there is a treasure in the tombs that evil wizards seek. When forced to sentence trespassers to, to a punishment, she decides to starve them to death. A rough scene at the end there. Yeah. Le Guin called it the bleakest of all the Earthsea series, that, yeah. those moments. What a terrible yeah. death she sentenced them to. And I believe that was yeah. the traditional punishment, right, of this culture. She just right. implemented it. But, you know, ostensibly, right. she did have the discretion to give them a different sentence or, you know, maybe keep it capital, but have it be quick. As a 15-year-old who had only been in her full priestesshood for a year, right. I doubt that that was a true option for her. And it's interesting the for me, one of the things in a different section, there's a quote, had she not done this many times before? Yeah. Mm. And so she she has this rolling conversation with herself. Mm-hmm. Oh, well my previous and, and of course they're uh, uh Kossel and and um and Thar are, are telling her this. Well the previous you did this right. or said that or you know liked right. these things or whatever. And what's you. to stop them from lying by the way? completely she is being uh the the internal monologue her internal monologue is being trained to always think oh what was the thing that i would have Mm -hmm. done before it's the thing that they told me because i don't know what i remembered before Mm -hmm. only i i just have to pretend that i remembered something but 
I'm only pretending because that's what somebody else told me outside of me. So it's this real like, you know, self gaslighting thing in a way. Well, and Castle, I believe, is being deliberately cruel. Yes. In leading her through jeering to pronouncing this sentence. And I think she's also enjoying. Yeah. Mm. It's sort of it's sort of like a gang initiation, right? Where they have to get yes. you in on the crime yes. so that you feel guilty and and that you have to be loyal now to the gang. That's what they're doing here. You have to you have to um you know be part of the priesthood now. Well, that's what Kossel is doing. Yes. Yeah. I don't yeah. think yeah, yeah. Thar does that. And I no. love this quote. If Thar had been stern, she had never been cruel. Mm. It was pride she had taught to Arha, not fear. Right. Now, after Thar's death, there was only Kossel. Arha had learned not to command Kossel. She had the right to do it, but not the strength. Kossel had held nothing sacred but power. She would do away with the worship of the empty throne if she could. She would do away with the first priestess if she dared. Yeah. And Arha is realizing this around the age of 16 or so. <laughs> right. I mean, I had pulled, yeah, let's not go into the unrealistic uh, insights of teenagers in uh, fantasy in general. <laughs> but um, anyway, if we're going to overlook that, um, I had pulled part of that quote myself, which was the, you know, she had the strength to, she had the will, the right to do it, but not the strength. I mean, that's mm. such a great way to put her position you know she's got the title but it's almost hollow and and we've seen that in other works too i think that especially uh again i'm gonna pull from wheel of time again there's a character in wheel of time who ends up having a hollow position of power and sort of learning how to play the power games herself and turning it into a real position of power and i think tanar basically does that she does it a little bit differently because she learns to escape it she she doesn't just play the game she wins it she you know, she leaves the table. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's it's super fascinating to see how Le Guin treats this power structure because it's not straightforward. It's not, this is the chain of command it's always followed. And she has to die to her previous 17 years in order to win the game. Mm-hmm. So it is a struggle, as we see. It is a challenge. Right. Right. Which we will get to when we start talking about freedom. Right. This treasure in the tombs that the evil wizards seek. It's fascinating to me. <laughs> I keep saying the word fascinating, but it is. And um, this idea that these priestesses are saying, well, the wizards, sorcerers, are all just illusion and tricks. And <laughs> Ged comes in later and goes, well, these guys are all just illusions and tricks. Everybody thinks that everybody else is just full of it. Nobody is is believing that the other side can do anything competent. Not an uncommon dynamic, don't you think? <laughs> right, right. Ours I, is the true god. Right, right, right. And especially though, you know, you you mentioned that ours is the true god. You've got these competing priestesses, right? These competing religions. Why are they trusted to pass on the secrets of the priesthood, the priestesshood? Uh, to the competing, to their competitors, right? Of reincarnated. I mean, there's so much incentive to sabotage there. Provided that you don't believe in any of it at all. Sure, sure. And that's, provided that you don't think the they'll difference. ever remember. 
Yeah. Because, you know, I think Tanar does legitimately start to remember things at some point, or maybe she's just conditioned to it by her peers. It's a really interesting question, John. I I go back and forth on that. You know, mm-hmm. are we meant to believe that she was in fact, you know, this reincarnation? And Ged asks her that in the tombs, and she's all she can come up with is, so I have always been taught. Right. Right, right. And I think that's a good reminder. I mean, there, I think it was a Jesuit saying, you give me a child until the age of seven and I'll have him for the rest of their life. She started her creepy. training all this at the age of six. Right. Well, it is creepy. Yeah. It is creepy. And I don't mean to impugn the Jesuits, and no. I don't think that they hold to that anymore anyway. But that, in essence, is what has happened to her. As as Ged said, you know, you, you I, I found you as a lamp in the darkness, and you were swathed with all this cloth. But, you know, we've managed to uncover it, and the lamp did not go out. Right. So... You know, I I like to think that the love of that mother right up until the very last minute, even if she couldn't remember it consciously, was enough to allow her to hold on to her true self, regardless of all the layers and layers of conditioning. On the other hand, she had to follow those layers of conditioning in order to survive. Right, right. Because, you know, Kossel's chilling line, you know, because you're the first priestess, you can also be the last. And she knows if I transgress the laws, then yeah, Manan will cut off my head this time instead of only in seeming in, right. in the pantomime when I became the priestess. So there are very strong incentives for her to behave the Which, way she behaves. And that's interesting too, because um, they fake cut off her head, which is to symbolize her being eaten and you know the death of her former self. But in a real world sense, we can cut your head off. (laughs) Very clear message. We have power over you. Our eunuchs are, you you can't control them. We control them. And um, yeah, you don't, you, you are not your own. If you're not careful, you're going to be like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. And you're going to think you're flying high and you're going to walk into that tomb and you're going to go, Oh, that's, that's it. That's it. Only you, John, can bring in the good fellas. <laughs> you gotta bring in good fellas. Right. And I have to think that this was not the dynamic when the previous Arha lived. Mm. Because the previous Arha lived to the age older. of 50 or so. Right. And so was, I think, probably contemporaneous with Thar, and that's why she chose Thar as the medium for transmitting all the messages right. and all Instead the information right. about it. Yeah, right. She probably also was pretty smart and realized that this young upstart castle was not a believer in any sense of the word and was wanting to push the power of the God King. And therefore, no, I'm not going to tell you. And that probably ate at Kossel a little bit on top of her personality and everything else. Yeah. You find that with people who are, are caught in something, they're often offended that they're caught more than they're offended at the truth of what they've been caught with. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A quick uh, note too on, um, the construction of Earthsea, there's just some great exposition implanted in the conversations that uh, Thar and Kossel have with Arha about yes. the world and the world building, and, and um, even in Arha's own explorations of her temple and uh, all of this explanation. It just really is, but it's so efficient and so effective. I remember when we talked uh, about Wizard of Earthsea, we were remarking on how 
few words it was compared to other contemporary, you know, or, you know, other, uh, uh, major fantasy works. And again, uh, Le Guin's, uh, masterful writing is perfectly drops this exposition and world building in, and it never feels onerous or, or, uh, the, we don't hear the voice of the author. We, it's really embedded in the story so well. And I just uh, love and respect that ability to put exposition in when it doesn't ever feel like that way. Yes, it's definitely not a knowledge dump, Mm-mm. even though that's what it is. But even though that's what it is. You um, wish that other authors would would study that yeah, particular right. technique. And I love the that fact she that has. she, you know, that she wrote in Wizard of Mercy with no intention, you know, the ring and the tombs and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, no, I just made that up to make a 3D, three-dimensional world. Right. And yet, here we go. We get this whole, like, really impactful book from one sentence in a previous book that was a throwaway line. <laughs> Brilliant. Absolutely genius. You know, and, and genius that doesn't even know that it's genius, right? She was just doing her thing. She was being an anthropologist. hmm Right. Makes sense to me. All right, why don't we move on to Ged? Here's the coming of Ged section. Tenar discovers a wizard named Ged attempting to steal something from the tombs of Atuan. She initially traps Ged, but ends up speaking more with him. Ged reveals that he seeks the other half of the Ring of Erith Akbe. Let let me just pause there. Fantasy writers put fewer consonants together. Anyway, the <laughs> ring... <laughs> The Ring of Aerith Akbe, a relic that can be used to create peace on Earthsea. Ged received the first half from the two people he was living with on an island in a Wizard of Earthsea. Ged figures out Tenar's true name and reveals his own, explains to her the truth of wizardry, and tries to convince her that the Nameless Ones are not truly gods. When the others discover Ged, Tenar fakes Ged's death to save him. Why don't we start with Marilyn this time? What are your thoughts? I love, again, this technique, the conversation revealing background information and knowledge. You know, we get to see these two views of magic um, and Tanar's ignorance, and yet she desperately does not want to be ignorant because she feels she's the dominant one here, and yet she keeps feeling ignorant and over, you know, he keeps winning the rounds, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that I really, really love is Ged asks, or Ged says something to the effect of uh, there's, there are not many books in your culture, are there, or readings and so forth. You know, you don't know your own history in effect. And she says, no, reading is one of the black arts. <laughs> yeah. And Ged yeah. says, yes, it is but a useful one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. As a librarian, you know, I have to. <laughs> right, refer, yes. Right? Absolutely. Right? It's the, just sort of the, the step-by-step progression as you see her slowly, again, slowly unwinding that uh, swath that was wrapped around mm, her true self. Yeah. Um, and her slowly coming to realize that she desperately does not want this man to die. Well, I think it goes back to sort of something you see in real life, which is, you know, you hear politicians say, they all think I'm a monster if they've been watching the other news side. 
But mm-hmm. if they meet me face to face, they see I'm a human being. And I mm-hmm. think that that's what happens here is just interacting with him on a regular basis makes mm-hmm. you go, oh, I've been lied to. You know, this is not this kind of evil sorcery that I've been told it was by these the other priestesses. I'm not sure how much she could have heard that if she hadn't had her conversations with Penthe. Hmm. If she hadn't hmm. realized that there were other ideas about the world and how it right. runs and you know she's so completely in the initial introductions to her you know she insists she wouldn't even look at them and she you know she wouldn't have looked at those ships passing by and you know she right. would have completely ignored them or, or cursed them or whatever she had the power to do well and then he you know because she's attenuated to um a, a relationship outside of her uh, two seniors, right, or the two other priestesses, but mm-hmm. a, an actual friendly, enjoyable thing. She's attenuated to that. So when um, Ged says to her, my lady, he said, I do not mean offense. I am a stranger and a trespasser. I do not know your ways, nor the courtesies do the priestess of the tombs. I am at your mercy, and I ask your pardon if I offended you. He's again using kindness here <laughs> to, yes. you know, uh, break down the, the tension of the moment. And rather than trying to have power over her, I am a great and mighty wizard. Right. right. He's saying, oh, I, you know, you're the, you're the priestess of the tombs and I am in, in your space and I have, you know, I, I, I am at your mercy. He's not trying to get power over her. He's just trying to relate to her. And if she had, I don't think if she had had that relationship with Penthe, she might not have been able to hear or, or resonate with what he was saying in this moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even with his staff taken away, he is still using his power. Yes. But yeah. because it's not a power over, it brings about the union that is necessary. He says at one point, um, alone, nobody can resist the powers of, of the dark ones, the nameless ones, but together we do have a chance. There we go. And that's just Do you want me to glorious. say relationship again? <laughs> <laughs> but the moment when he calls her by her name. Yeah. It's just absolutely stunning. And it's right at the end of this section. But I, I still had to call it out now because she's telling him now the things that she's doing in contradiction to her own laws and customs and those of her people to keep him alive. And later on, the quote I read earlier when he says, you know, I came as a thief and so forth, and, and you fed me. Mm. You know, you, you didn't just kill me, which was your, your right and your responsibility, by the way. Um, and in return, he sees her because that is also his power, to be able to see people truly. Right, right. Because he which, listens, again, because he has silence. He listens, and he doesn't try to overlay any of his own stuff on them. Right. Which is pretty remarkable radical <laughs> you don't, acceptance you don't radical exactly <laughs> yeah. you don't see it very often you know something that seems slightly contradictory to me is that in a wizard of Earthsea, get has to confront his dark get side uh and really you know understand that that's all part of him and that he can't divide those two halves in this book you have this moment where get says you need to choose. Are you going to betray me to the other priestesses or are you going to help me? That seems to be a little bit contradictory to me. Is, you know, 
sure, she sort of finds a little bit of a middle path. You know, she fakes his death and tries to keep her position while keeping him alive. But really, I mean, in the end, she has to choose the light side, right? She has to choose to be Tenar uh, and to not be not be part of that dark society anymore and not be part of, of the Arha uh, society. Uh, do, do you two feel that that is contradictory the way I do, or am I reading this differently? What I see in that is, is he's giving her the power to name herself. Mm-hmm. And he does it literally by saying the names, you know. Either you have to be Arha or you have to be Tanar. You cannot be both. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to tell you what to do. Okay. You have to choose. You have to decide. So he's giving her the agency. Right. But he's not giving her. First time in her life, basically. He, he's not giving her agency. He's actually just describing the world. Mm-hmm. He's describing he's the identifying the agency identifying, that she has already. Yeah, he's giving her he's distinction. He's respecting her agency. Yes, exactly. So, so I guess my question is not who's giving the agency is. Is it is it contradictory to say, well, Ged, you have to merge your halves. Tenar, pick a half. I don't think that she has ever really been aware of her own dark side, if you will. Um, as a whole human being at this point. Okay, go on. She's, she's the eaten one. She doesn't, she's not supposed to have personality. Remember that horrible right. scene when Penthe gets beaten and she doesn't? And right. afterwards, it's Thar, actually, who confronts her and says, you know, it was eaten. And she's forced to repeat, it was eaten. Mm. So the fact that she has any agency left at all is pretty astounding and that's what Ged sees in her is despite all the odds her true self persisted and that's part of why he was able to give her back her name Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until after she had her name back that she could make a choice right right and and in doing that i mean she can I spoil ahead to the next section? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Point? yeah, yeah. We're all I mean, spoilers. she almost yeah. kills him. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So she you does know, retain some of that dark side in her. It's hard to let go of it after 17 years. Um, and she's still under the influence of them. And oh, by the way, they're in a cave, as David observed earlier. Right. So that just might have something to do and with And the nameless ones are real in this fantasy exactly. world. We right. don't think they're real. They they do not appear. They have no they seem to have no force or agency, you know, and and all along Le Guin has been giving us this sense of they're just toiling without purpose. They're just going through motions. We don't even know what all this stuff means. Are there even in, any nameless ones? Are they really there? Mm-hmm. And in in reality, Ged is like, no, they're real, and I've been hold. I'm holding them back. I can't do it for much longer. You've got to make a choice. They want, you know, they have control over you as Arha. That's the truth. And you have you have an ability to have control over yourself as Tenar. So I'm just describing the choice. They want you on this side. Do you want to stay on that side, or do you want to go to this other side where there's a, all these other mm. possibilities? There's nothing in between. We're in a dualistic mm-hmm. world here. Mm-hmm. They're gonna eat your soul, or they're not. <laughs> right? right? And they're pissed off, and they're waking up. Did you truly think them dead? You know better in your heart. They mm. do not die. They are dark and underlying, and they hate the light. 
the brief bright light of our mortality. They are immortal, but they are not gods. They never were. They are not worth the worship of any human mm. soul. Yeah. She listened, her eyes heavy, her gaze fixed on the flickering lantern. What have they ever given you, Tanar? Nothing, she whispered. They have nothing to give. They have no power of making. All their power is mm. to darken and destroy. They cannot leave this place. They are this place, and it should be left to them. They should not be denied nor forgotten, but neither should they be worshipped. Mm, yeah. Mm, I like that. I yeah, like that last part, especially. It's the reality of there is kindness and there is cruelty. And anybody who tries to pretend they're only one or the other is just deluding themselves. Now, she has dealt all her life with the cruelty that they tried to pour into her. But it did not, in fact, entirely overcome her. And it, yes, Ged was the one finally, Penthe started it, but Ged was the one who finally allowed her to see and gave her back her name. Right. That, you know, that, that he did do. Real that, yeah. point. that he did do. Yeah. Tanar gave Ged back his life. Yeah. <laughs> by starving herself to feed him. Right. And then by leading him out of the labyrinth. Hmm. Right. I like the, that line, um, uh, which John also commented on, which is that, you know, we, we can't worship, we shouldn't worship this stuff, but we shouldn't forget it either. Yeah. And it, that seems to me to have some resonance in our modern context, especially when we're looking at our own history as, uh, um, <sighs> as U United States and, and some of the, the social history that we have had and the debate over what are things called and what, what statues are we commemorating? We don't need to be putting certain things on certain, sta you know, certain statues, but at the same time, we also need to have an active memory and to have an right. active history so that we understand where we came from and the things that we need to atone for. Things can be in a textbook without being on a monument. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, good point. The, am I right to connect the nameless ones with the stone entity from the first yes. one? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't Absolutely. we talk about that a little bit? You know, what is that connection and how, if they're all contained to the tombs of Atuan, are they able to be brought into different objects? I'm, I'm a little confused about how this mythology works, or is it not explained? Is it just sort of vague? I think it's left to the reader to decide. Um, my understanding is there are multiple forms of the nameless ones. Okay. Um, at one point, this is my thesis, at one point they were viewed as part of a whole and they had a function and a purpose okay. that was not harmful. But as the power imbalance became greater and greater, they started taking on all the anger and the rage and, and the, you know, the heaviness. And they began to hate the fact that they had been condemned to this mm. instead of being allowed to be a, a part of the whole and a needful part of the whole. We need the darkness. Right. You know, right. I like to sleep. Um, bulbs need the darkness underground in order to grow. Right. But that, those qualities were devalued in a culture that valued the light over the darkness mm. and disrupted that balance, worshiped the light hated the darkness, relegated it to, you know, instead of accepting it the way Ged did in the first book. Yeah. Yeah. Naming it, being honest, yes, I can be very cruel and cutting to people, 
Um, yes, I might even kill somebody if I felt that, you know, my child's life was at risk, you know, acknowledging it, being honest about it. Yes, my pride could lead me to do terrible things in Ged's case. Right. But it's this separation of the two and equating one good to the other bad that leads to the inequality of the two and therefore leads to the sickening of, of both, really, because too much light is a terrible thing, too. Right. And what's the the line? I'm trying to find it in our uh, previous uh, outlines where um, Ged, uh, he's when he's rejoined, he he is his own master. Yes. Right? He can't be used for purpose that is not his own purpose. That his he own... cannot be overtaken into the service of others. Right. And that's what the Dark Powers wanted. And when he was in, uh, oh, I forget the name of the, the far fortress uh, where the one big stone was underneath there. Um, yeah. The Terranon. Yes, yes exactly. Castle of Terranon. Yeah, was it was trying to master him, and then and then you know and take him yes. over, right? And so yes. he can be in the presence of the nameless ones here and not be uh, taken over by them, because he is because his own self, and he has accepted his own death, right, and his mm, own mortality, right, and that will become very important in the third book. Okay. So why don't we move on to the last section then? That is the escape and conclusion. After Castle discovers that Ged's death was faked, Tenar decides to leave the tombs of Atuan with Ged, who has found the other half of the Ring of Aerith Akbe. The tombs collapse as they escape, and they sail away on Ged's boat. After Tenar considers killing Ged for pulling her away from the priesthood, she reclaims her true name and sheds Arha. She is free from the Nameless Ones. So I, I remember reading here just you know the other week when i was finishing this up this is when the story really picks up that pace and you really feel yeah. the wind in your face and and motion is happening um and it's such masterful writing to be able to take that subtle tone shift into it without knowing that you're shifting right I, we're just right. on the story right. and it just feels natural and so when it starts to flow i just I'm so enamored with her ability with prose. It's a, a, her, her gift was phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I do enjoy uh, them, them sailing off together. I like that Ged sort of goes, we can go anywhere. You know, yeah, I'll bring you here. I'll bring you there. Uh, you don't have to just go where you, where you think you should go. Uh, that, was, that was a nice moment. Again, I do think that Ged becomes Gandalf in this book. He's very you know, wise old guide. Kind of thing. Uh, Gedolf is a, a good dude for, to uh, Tenar, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm sort of getting a little bit of imagery of going off to the Undying Lands for Tenar. Right, she can finally be free of the suffering of the tombs. Hmm. Right. Interesting. Well, and then she's she goes back. I mean, we talk about the hero's journey. She brings back the ring to the people. Right. So she's the one who completes the quest on behalf right. of the people. Um, and it's very interesting, too. He was like, he didn't ever understand the ring until he put it on her wrist. And he was like, oh, hey, this was actually a wrist for somebody's arm here. Like, uh, you know, uh, so it was like, yeah, you know, you you were blind to this idea that this was a woman's uh, piece of jewelry. 
not a man's ring right. that you put on your finger, right? You know, but this is this is a, a piece of jewelry that you yeah, you didn't understand what it was that you were seeking. What are the dimensions of this ring where one person can think it's for a finger and another person can think it's for a wrist? I, well, I think it was lost so long ago that people have okay. lost all okay. comprehension. But he's got of half of it, right? Size. If I've got half, I can Fair generally point. figure out how big this thing's going to be. A ring sure. and a bracelet sure. are not sure. the same size here. Well, he well, didn't he even know it was until terrible about jewelry. You know? Well, he would have thought it. about it eventually. You know, when he first got it, it was as he said, "I you He's know, thanked her and put it in my pocket, and I wandered off." But right. fortunately, I always kept it with me. And <laughs> oh, by the way, this is a really important critical thing. object here for the future of Percy. <laughs> I would love I, to be there in that conversation when that dragon was like, "By yeah. the way, Mister <laughs> Dragon Lord, Master Mage, whatever, do you realize how stupid you are because you've got that thing in your pocket and you don't even know what it is?" Right, right. There's a really there's a story about Bruce Springsteen. I know this is this seems out of left field, but I'll get back to it. <laughs> there's a story about Bruce Springsteen about how he had recorded the demos for his album Nebraska on a cassette tape and he kept it in his pocket while he was running around with it. And they recorded a whole other album based on those demos with the E street band and it was full band. And they said, no, let's just use the demo. So he was carrying the record with him in his pocket getting jostled around. And it sounds so like ratty at the end. Uh, it ends up working for the sound, but I'm just picturing the same thing with get of <laughs> buddy rattling around in your pocket is world peace. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or half of it anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still a little confused about how that is world peace and how that is going to just fix things. Um, I don't know if anyone can illuminate that for me. Well, we have to keep reading. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That's the best way. I I really see uh, Tanar being viewed in two different ways in this section. I think Ged is still seeing her almost mythically in a way. You know, she's had all these different roles. She was priestess, now she's free. She's Tanar of the Ring. She is restoring peace to Earthsea, etc., etc. And then, you know, people will honor you, and you can go to the court, and they'll give you fine clothing. Whatever. He has no clue of what her life has been like up to this point, and just doesn't recognize that she is utterly lost. <laughs> <laughs> right, he is right. She knows to the back. nothing. Yeah. She knows nothing of the outer world. Right, and sh this is and her he's trying struggle. to sell her. <laughs> this is what she realizes. It's like all that I know is useless, right. and I will right. do my best to learn. And he winces when she says that, and realizes for the first time, oh yeah, golly. I hadn't really twigged to that yeah. part yet. <laughs> was Typical. so busy holding back the earthquake and getting us into the hills he and was disguising busy. us. That's all right. Typical he had other of our things gender. On his mind. Typical right, of our right. gender. But you know, I think she kind of buys into it too a little bit and goes back into that sort of um, archaic kind of role of okay, my last act as priestess will be to kill this man who mm. destroyed the tombs, kind of thing. So you can see it's this sort of inflated thinking and this another human being thinking who has needs and so forth. Right. And it's so poignant when they have gone out on the water, or was it on the boat? I yes, I think it was on the boat where she tells him, you know, I have done great evil. Right. Yep. And he lights his staff and suddenly he's like a judge and bench, you know, what evil have you done to not? 
and she tells him, and he says, that evil was poured into you. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was not evil that you did. So, going all the way back to what we were talking about when, you know, she says, let the prisoners starve. We could see Castle leading her to that point. Right. But she took it on as, you know, she had all those dreams. She was sick for a week. I mean, clearly it right. sickened her soul. She was She was brought into that culpability on purpose. Right. And she's also guilty for the death of Manon. Mm-hmm. Right. Because she said, I treated him horribly, but he loved me. He was the closest I had to a mother. And his death is my fault. And Ged says, no, no, no. I take that death upon me. Mm. I was the one. But he, and I don't think he's just doing that to make her feel better. Mm, I mean, I really think he recognizes that only the truth will do for Tanakh. Right. Well, and this is when you're when you're trying to um, reckon with the harm that has been done. You have to take account exactly. for it, and you exactly. have to understand the impact that it's had for you and for other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so she's trying to account for that. Put me on an island, but you know, just like yes. those two little kids. I, I am unclean. Right. I'm not you. I'm not redeemable. Right. I don't belong in your shiny world with yeah. lords and ladies and high castles and you know the pinnacles of whatever. You know, when she walks into that little town and says, "How can you possibly imagine that?" You know, the Kargish Empire will not eventually overcome your land. And he gently says, "Well." We've got a few more <laughs> cities than this, and they're kind of bigger. But when I first came out of the mountains for my goats, I would have thought the same thing. Right, right. So he's finally beginning to relate to her on that level. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah and so. then when he does relate to her, uh, you know, then, then he's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> Gaunt and Ogion would be a great place for you. Right. So I finally understand that you are like someone newborn, and, yeah. you know, Havnor is not for you right now. You can go to Gaunt. To Ogion and have what? Silence. So, uh, about Ogion, um, I love this line. She looked at him from the horror of the earthquake to the man beside her, whose face she had never seen by daylight. You held it back, she said. Then her voice piped like the wind in a reed after that mighty bellowing and crying of the earth. You held back the earthquake, the anger of the dark. Which is what Ogion did, right? He stilled the earthquake. So yes. was there a dark power there? I don't know. You know, maybe whatever. But the, the point is, is that he has become his master in that sense of power and the ability, the specific ability to, to do that, that one thing is to hold back the earthquake. So now, I love that connection. I'd never made it before. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and if you want to know how Ogian held the earthquake back, that's one of the short stories in uh, Oh, Nails damn it. But see, this is why we discuss the books we love. Right. I can't tell you how many times I read that book and I never made that connection before. Right. So there thank you, you go. No, you're very it's welcome. Really cool. Yeah. Uh, a piece of prose, and then I think we, um, I don't know, John, I think we should probably get into this thesis statement, I what think I think so. is the, the thesis statement of the book. Um, just this one thing grabbed me, and this is, again, being out on the water. Over and over and over, it made the same sounds, yet never quite the same. It never rested. On all the shores of all the lands and all the world, it heaved itself in these unresting waves and never ceased and never was still. The desert, the mountains, they stood still. They did not cry out forever in a great dull voice. The sea spoke forever, but its language was foreign to her. She did not understand. 
<laughs> just the yeah. her ability to take her experience from the desert, the high desert in Oregon, and then put it into this book in this way, and then contrast it to the sea in this archipelago land. I, I'm just so high on <laughs> on good prose here. Also, it's Oregon, Ogian. Mm. Uh, <laughs> all right. Good stuff. All right. So I think, we, I don't know, the, this to me was the thesis statement, um, uh, and I'm, I call it sort of the, the weight of liberty. I can't read this, though, without, I, I will cry <laughs> if I try to oh, read it. Oh, I will happily read it. Okay. If I may, John. Go ahead. They have been in the boat. She's just tried to kill him, and he has come back from his silence and looked her in the eyes and said her name again, and she came back to herself. And so they shoved the boat out into the water. Now, he said, now we're away. Now we're clear. We are clean gone, Tanar. Do you feel it? She did feel it. A dark hand had let go its lifelong hold on her heart. But she did not feel joy as she had in the mountains. She put her head down in her arms and cried, and her cheeks were salt and wet. She cried for the waste of her years in bondage to a useless evil. She wept in pain because she was free. What she had begun to learn was the weight of liberty. Freedom is a heavy load, a great and strange burden for the spirit to undertake. It is not easy. It is not a gift given, but a choice made. And the choice may be a hard one. The road goes upward toward the light, but the laden traveler may never reach the end of it. Yeah. And I am reminded of a sign that was on the wall of one of the very first counselors I ever worked with. The truth will set you free. But first, it will make you miserable. <laughs> yeah. And this is why I talk about, you know, the unhealed wounds. Yeah. The process of wanting to heal them requires you to take them out and look at them. Mm. Not so that you relive them over and over and over. That's PTSD. Mm. But it's so you can remember them without reliving them. Right. And be free of that power mm. that it may have had over you. And may I point out, Ged did almost exactly the same thing in exactly the same situation. Mm -hmm. He and Vetch were floating in the sea immediately after he had united with his shadow and he said, it's gone, I am free. Mm. And he, and he put wept. his head in his arms and he wept. Right. Well, she knows how to write an ending. <laughs> we know and, that about Le Guin. Yeah. And it's so important that it's, it's not, you know, a, a typical Hollywood movie is, oh, we defeat the evil, yay, cut scene. Right. There's, right. there's moral harm that's been done to yourself in the things and the struggle that you've had to do. There's harm that's been done to others. You have to account for that. You have to understand its impact. We have to remember it, but not forget it. That kind of thing. We can't be wrapped up with it. And I don't think that if she had not written this part, if, oh, we, we went over the hills and the tomb was gone. And, and I think she got some criticism for going this far because people weren't yeah. used to 
right. no, wait a minute. There's a there's some stuff that we have to process as human beings to resolve uh, within ourselves before we can be healed, before we can be whole. Happy endings really can really don't contain sad losses, right? And then this idea that freedom is <laughs> liberty isn't. We, you know, I get to just do whatever I want. I can sleep in as long. No, no, right, right. You've you've got to be responsible. There's, it's a heavy right. load. I, uh, to you know, a weird segue. You know, I, I have my own little boutique specialty business, and sometimes when it's down, when things aren't going well, oh, it is horrible and <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> but at the same time, I have freedom because I'm my own boss in that way. Yeah. And I can't imagine going back to a nine to five now after having, you know, lived mm-hmm. this life. And so, uh, it, mm-hmm. you know, strange way I could, some of my, my work life is, uh, resonates with this, uh, statement here, um, is that like, oh yeah, right. It's, it's a choice. It's a thing that you do mm-hmm. every day. Um, and it's not something that, um, it's not a, a slogan to put on a t-shirt, I guess. No. And then later on, She's so overwhelmed by it that she wants him to put her on an island so that she can die. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And that is the kind of pain that many people feel when they first start to uncover and yeah. to process and to recover. Right. You know, that, that fear of, if I start feeling all the stuff that I've kept at bay for all these right. years, I'll never stop crying. It feels Either that, that or it'll kill me. And he says you know, that to her, you can't see it from this, uh, from where you are. Right. You've got to get right. up over here before you can right. see it. Right. And I have one more thing from Le Guin for that I really want to include here. She says, Tanar's character and the events of the story came from deep within me. So deep that the subterranean and labyrinthian image, imagery, excuse me, and a certain volcanic quality are hardly to be wondered at. But the darkness, the cruelty, the vengefulness. After all, I could have just let them go free. Why did I destroy the whole place of the tombs with an earthquake? It's a kind of huge suicide. The nameless ones annihilating their temple in a vast spasm of rage. Maybe it was the whole primitive, hateful idea of the feminine as dark, blind, weak, and evil that I saw shaking itself to pieces, imploding crumbling into the wreckage on a desert ground. And I rejoiced to see it fall. Mm. I still do. <laughs> what a great place to leave it on. Yeah. Well, we still had that one more question about is get in love with her. Uh, uh, yeah, it seems so kind of um, small now. It does. To, it does. <laughs> <to the thing. laughs> I was just caught by the the line. I'd come to my, I'd come from my grave if you called me Tanar, but I can't stay with you. I was like, wait a minute, what do you, you know? Yeah. Well, there's a reason why you have that wait a minute feeling. Right. I, I certainly feel that, yes, Ged is in love with her. Because as a, from his path, he's not ever, um, uh, you know, well, I don't know what, it, yeah. It, it, he seems he says, to be I have aesthetic. to go where I am sent. Yeah. He seems to be I'm an not, aesthetic, right? I'm aesthetic? not, I'm not free. Right. You know. He's a monk. She asks. She actually asks him. um, You know, will you come with me? Right. Yep. And it takes him up before he can answer and say, "I'm not free to not. I have to go where I'm sent." Yeah. But if ever you need me, call me. I would come from my grave. Wherever you you are. Wherever (laughs) you're from. All right. 
but I cannot stay with you. Right. Yeah. So just just remember all this little bit from um, book four. This conversation for book four. Yeah. yeah. I, all right. I, I need it now. So very cool. Well, I think it's time we take a quick break. When we get back, we will get into some listener feedback. And we're back. So we've got one piece of listener feedback here. Brian8063, Loremaster Brian8063, is here with some thoughts on the book. Hello, Earthsea team. The Tombs of Atuan is another great installment of the Earthsea books. Again, Le Guin is a master writer. I really appreciate Marilyn's comment on the Discord server when she said that the first three books are about initiation into adulthood. You really see Tenar's growth in this book. I was fascinated by the society she grew up in. In her earlier stages, Tenar almost seemed bored with her life. It's the same routine and rituals in empty spaces. Relics, almost, of a dying life. The creation of Ea, quote, found in the first book, might relate to Tenar's journey. Only in silence, the word. Only in dark, the light. Mm. Only in dying, life. Mm. Bright, the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Once Ged enters the picture and says her name, Tenar gains the courage to be free. I think she had these thoughts of fleeing for a long time, but seemed stuck. Thanks again for introducing this series to me, Brian8063. Mm. Do we yeah. think that the quote of the creation of Aya relates to Tenar's journey? I think it, yes. I think it relates to the world that she's built and that Tenar and this story are reflective of that, right? These are the values that she's okay. ruling out in these stories. And so I, I love the resonance and the harmony, the internal harmony here. And I'd never, uh, just like Marilyn a moment ago, I don't think I made that connection. Only in silence the word, only in dark the light. Right. You right. know, and then it's, yeah, it, it takes Ged flying by for her to go, oh, wait, there's a sky up there. Um, right. And what does that mean? What is a sky? Oh, interesting. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with. Did she do that? You know, knowingly at the beginning? No, I don't think so. I think this is this this beauty of this world that that emerges uh, from her imagination, and it is it has this beautiful internal consistency to it. Yeah. Yeah. This is her statement. I think of her understanding of the Tao. Right. The needing of the two seeming opposites for one another to create the whole. And the fact that it, um, you know, she wrote it thinking she was only writing the one book. It became the touchstone for several books from that point on, because it is a nice summation in beautiful language. Right. And I think that's why, even though the plot might be a little bit different, between the two books, they do still feel like they're in the same world, that they're speaking the same language, that they are interconnected. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that is a great point, Marilyn, is that's the cornerstone of this universe. It's not necessarily that she had Tenar in mind when she wrote that, but it is that she based Tenar and her journey on this understanding that she developed when creating the series and when developing her own personal beliefs. Yes. I also want to give a shout out to Brian C. for his comment on Tanar almost seemed bored with her life. Mm -hmm. I think 
that utter sense of boredom that was summed up in this amazing observation in the text. The most exciting thing that could happen was to get a greater slop of oil on your lentils than your neighbor did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that and fishing. But, you know, that's the other part of this whole piece that it was just, I mean, this book was just full of this endless boredom. And uh, yes, I think at one point, Tanar says it almost rose up in her throat and threatened to choke her. Mm. Um, You know, reflecting how the rituals and all of this had just become meaningless. Yeah. And arid, you know, there was very little that was fruitful there at all. The only thing that the God King sends is uh, some prisoners to be sort of disposed of in this ritualistic way. Right, right. No more sending of gold or treasures, no more princesses coming to dance with the one priestess, no more asking for advice. No wonder the uh, nameless ones were angry. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. Right. Well, thanks so much, Brian8063. Always great to hear from you and uh, always great to see you chatting in the Discord. Uh, We'll talk to you again there soon for the farthest shore. For now, let's thank our lore masters. So we've got three Patreon tiers. Our top tier is our lore master tier. Part of that is you get a special thank you shout out at the end of every podcast. So here's our list as of right now recording. Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Doof 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, and DJ Miwa. Thank you all so much. Thank you to all our patrons. Uh, you know, we mentioned we're doing this membership drive, and we wouldn't even be attempting to get to 100 if you all weren't already ge- keeping us pretty close to that goal. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so thank you so much. You really are helping us keep this going, helping us keep doing these fun projects like the Earthsea series that, you know, we're covering a 50-year-old series, and that's all because we have the support and the community to do that. So thank you. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, just really quickly about the thank you sticker. Everyone who is a uh, member at the end of July is going to get a free sticker in the mail. It's going to say the Lorehounds on it. It's going to have our little lion and rabbit. It all comes from our original logo for our Second Age podcast. And then underneath in Elven handwritten uh, Elven script, it's going to have a, a saying which basically translates into uh, one year of good memories. And that's thanks to Marilyn who came up with that phrase. And Marilyn's contacts in the um, larger. Well, I don't know, Marilyn. You're raising your hand. You, I don't know where it's you, one year of good history. Thank you. One year of good history. I apologize. Um, uh, one year of good history, and then Marilyn actually went to her Tolkien community, and we got a whole bunch of people who <laughs> gave us handwritten scripts, and so we're evaluating the final one, and we'll get that into the mail to everyone who is a subscriber at the end of July. So uh, again, thank you, everyone. Um, I guess we should wrap it up with a little bit of programming notes. I think we should. So we've got a new podcast on the network. It's Wool Shift Dust, hosted by Alicia. You may have heard her on our other podcasts. Uh, She's doing a really great job. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. And we're so happy to – congratulations to us for having such a great contributor and network affiliate. Um, Every Monday – Maybe Tuesday sometimes, but every Monday generally, you're going to get a new episode of Wool Shift Dust covering Silo on Apple TV+. Plus. Check that out. She and her co-host, Luke, do a great job breaking that down. It's very lore-houndy. It's very 
in depth. She pulls from the book. She lets you know what's different, what's not. Uh, I'm really enjoying that podcast. I've ridden into it. I might write in again. And I think David, you and I will probably hop on that podcast at some point this season just to chat about the the show. Yeah, looking forward to doing that. Uh, also, if you want more Alicia and John, uh, we just actually did a review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, you can catch that on our feed right now. Uh, more MC Universe is coming later in the month. Uh, David, you, John, and Alicia are going to be doing some prep for Into, sorry, Across the Spider-Verse. Right. That is the um, the sequel to Into the Spider-Verse, the animated Spider-Man film that's coming out in June. Uh, and since you're here on the book nook, I'll mention that we have a Silmarillion Stories episode this month with uh, Aaron from Lore of the Rings. That's another Tolkien podcast. We're going to be chatting of uh, chatting about of Eldamar and the coming of the Adalier. Uh, I'm really excited to chat with Aaron. We did a cross promotion with him a while back. You might have heard that. And uh, it's good to connect finally. David, yeah, what do we sure. have coming in June? Yeah, we just did our programming for plans for June. It's going to be a much lighter month. We don't have any big tentpole shows. Uh, like having three shows now all ending in the same last week of May, Ted Lasso and Barry and uh, the White House Plumbers. Um, so it'll be nice. We'll have a, a little bit of a breather and uh, we'll relax because we produced over 20 podcasts this month. We are two things of note. We are going to do a live watch of a Studio Ghibli film that our patrons are going to choose. John gave me a list of 10. I got to narrow that down to three, and then uh, everyone who's a Patreon member is going to be able to vote on that. And then we're going to live watch that. We're going to actually, using uh, some Discord features, you can hop on the Discord feature. We'll be there and chat. We can all watch the film together and uh, talk about it. Uh, so that'll be fun. And then we're also kicking off our Star Wars Film Fest, where we're watching all 11 movies. That includes uh, Solo and uh, Rogue One. And we're going to do them in chronologic story world chronological order so we're starting with phantom menace and we're going to be live streaming that as well and then we're going to podcast about it and we'll release the podcast a little bit later so look for those once we publish the full june schedule and then at the end of june we've got secret invasion which is coming from uh, marvel studios and that is going to be an exciting proposition samuel L. jackson bit of a spy thriller type of show, a little bit different for the MCU. And then we'll have all of our usual shows like Second Breakfast and Silmarillion Stories and everything like that. Oh, and then uh, John is waving at me in our Google Doc here um, saying a Mrs. Davis retro. That's right. John and Marilyn, uh, do you guys want to talk about that really quick? Yeah, uh, Marilyn and I have been chatting about how great Mrs. Davis is. Marilyn tried to get us in on it earlier on, and uh, we were busy. We didn't we didn't factor this into our schedule. I recently got caught up. I like binged it over a weekend because it was so good. And after the finale, I can't imagine they're not going to stick this landing. As long as they do, I think Marilyn and I are going to chat about this on a one-off episode next month. I think it'll be fun to dive into some of the themes. This thing is chock full of them. The show is chock full of religious themes and themes about power and themes about it's, it's just got everything. It's got everything you could ever want in a, in a deep science fiction show. So uh, really looking forward to that conversation, Marilyn. It's going to be fun and it's going to be wacky and wild. Yes. Just like the show. <laughs> just like the show. As of this recording, that. final episode is dropping in 
like 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Or so, or less than that, maybe. So. Right. We may re- we may change our minds depending on what they do. At the end, but I I am reasonably confident that they will do something wonderful. Well, this has been uh, a wonderful couple of hours uh, deep diving on this book with you guys. Um, I really am enjoying this series. Thank you, Marilyn, for suggesting this to us, and it's such a pleasure to uh, have such fun compatriots to to talk about it. And um, yeah, I'm really looking to forward to the farthest shore. I have some vague memories of it. It's been a while, but uh, I think it's going to be a very cool read. Well, thank you very much for taking me up on it because I'm having a time of my life. So Great. John? See you all next month. The Lorehounds Podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.